Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, anarchists attack a journalist in Portland, the census citizenship question debate gets confused, and advocacy groups left, right, and center take on a constitutionally dubious New Jersey law targeting anonymous speech. Last weekend, Antifa demonstrators held a rally in Portland, Oregon. Journalist Andy Nyo of the online outlet Quillette, who has tracked and reported on a series of black bloc activities in Portland, was repeatedly struck by thrown objects, especially milkshakes, a reference to a British form of assault-slash-protest that involves throwing the drinks on right-wing politicians, especially members of the Brexit party. Video taken of the event shows demonstrators beating Nyo. Nyo was hospitalized for head injuries after the event. Yo identified personally hostile postings by internet groups aligned with the demonstration before the incident and expressed fear that he would be targeted. Portland Antifa and Black Bloc groups have taken exception to his critical coverage of the anarchist group's violent extremism. Antifa itself is as much a tactic or ideology as it is a group, at least in part because the extremist anarchist communist faction's activities tread or cross the line between lawful demonstration and illegal assaults, vandalism, and riot. Antifa maintains no central structure and its participants wear black clothing, masks, and sunglasses to obscure their identities, a practice known as black bloc tactics. While Antifa is a marginal force in politics and culture, it has prospered in jurisdictions like Portland and Berkeley, California, that have not made efforts to counter the violent extremists. While most national coverage is fairly focused on extreme right elements in the wake of the murderous riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, the most recent incident shows that extremist violence is a problem that transcends ideology. The authorities and cultural powers of both ideological sides do not quarantine and condemn their violent fringes, the street violence will only get worse. For what it's worth, a number of prominent liberals condemn the attack on Yale. Journalists, including CNN's Jake Tapper and New York writer Jesse Single, Democratic presidential candidates Representative Eric Swalwell and Andrew Yang, and institutions, including the Committee to Protect Journalists, all condemned Antifa's actions. Katie Herzog, a writer for the Seattle left-wing alt-weekly The Stranger, warned progressives that violence from their side was highly likely to be counterproductive to their aims. Proposed responses to the apparent attack on Yo have included Representative Swalwell's proposal to make attacking a journalist a federal crime, almost assuredly a bad idea, if only because having the government determine who is or isn't a journalist could backfire on the free press. Others, including National Review's David French, have proposed the adoption of anti-masking laws that would prohibit participants in mass demonstrations from obscuring their faces. Such laws were originally employed to combat the KKK, and courts have held that they are constitutionally permissible if properly applied. Our thoughts are with Mr. Nyo, and we wish him a speedy and full recovery. It's a case of conflicting reports. The New York Times, citing a Justice Department email to liberal groups challenging the addition of a question on citizenship to the 2020 census, reported that the Census Bureau had dropped the effort after a process-based rebuke from the Supreme Court last week, and had begun printing census forms without a citizenship question. That drew a denial from the current president, who could presumably order the Commerce Department to reattempt a justification for such a question, though the timeline to do so is unclear. The confusion started last week, when the Supreme Court ruled that while there was no legal prohibition on adding a question regarding citizenship to the main census questionnaire, the Commerce Department's purported rationale for doing so, enforcing voting rights laws, was so obviously pretextual that it could not stand without reconsideration at the lower courts or a new justification altogether. Some observers suggested that if there were time available—the deadline for printing census forms is disputed—the ruling had laid out a means for the federal government to remedy the initial defect in the question's adoption— Namely, give a plausible, permissible reason for it. Then this week, the Times reported that the Census Bureau, a subordinate agency of the Commerce Department, 
had informed lawyers for challengers to the question that it had begun printing census forms without the question, seeming to conclude the matter. In a victory for left-of-center groups, including the New York Immigration Coalition, one of the respondents of record in the case, the American Civil Liberties Union, whose lawyers helped prepare NYIC's legal briefs, and a number of liberal groups that filed briefs supporting the challenge by the Immigration Coalition and the Government of New York, among them Common Cause, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, and a coalition of left-wing foundations, including the Bauman Foundation, the California Endowment, the Ford Foundation, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, alongside the Funders Committee for Civic Participation, a coalition of left-of-center donor groups. But on Wednesday, July 3rd, the president, on his preferred media platform, informed the public that the Times report was all-caps fake and that he intended to move forward with the question. It is unclear if he has in fact directed the Commerce Department or the Justice Department to do anything in particular, however. So for now, the question is out, giving the ACLU and its allies a provisional win. But the next steps are up to the federal government, a government which has hurt itself by being chaotic, confused, and conflicting throughout the process. And in our final item, while bipartisan reform often means both major factions ripping off the general public together, it's not a good sign of one's legislative wisdom when the Libertarian Conservative Americans for Prosperity and the Left Progressive American Civil Liberties Union are both threatening to be the first to sue one for passing an unconstitutional infringement on free speech. Enter New Jersey, sued this week in federal court by Americans for Prosperity, who won the race to the courthouse, for passing a draconian law against so-called dark money that the ACLU's state affiliate had also criticized as unconstitutionally restrictive of advocacy speech. So what would the law do? In an article opposing it for the Star-Ledger, David Keating of the Libertarian-Leaning Institute for Free Speech and Amal Sinha of the ACLU explain, quote, The legislation, S-1500, would publicize names, home addresses, and employment information of donors to any New Jersey nonprofit that speaks on issues of public concern, such as discussing legislation with lawmakers, speaking to community members about grassroots causes, or publishing factual legislative scorecards, close quote. The law is highly unusual in that it applies campaign-style disclosure rules to issue advocacy, which is a fancy legal technical term for arguing publicly about government policy. After a couple rounds of argument with the legislature, Governor Phil Murphy acceded to the state legislature's insistence that he sign the identical S-150, ostensibly with an agreement that the overbroadness would be legislatively remedied. In its court filing, Americans for Prosperity argued that, quote, if the law takes effect, merely stating facts or offering opinions about laws or even regulations will trigger invasive disclosure requirements and daunting burdens of the sort reserved for regulating elections. No such bid by the government to equate mere conveyance of factual information and issue advocacy with electioneering can possibly withstand exacting scrutiny. And the danger to the political process presented by laws like New Jersey's is interestingly related to our first item on violent extremism. As the Institute for Free Speech and ACLU New Jersey note in their Star-Ledger op-ed, public disclosures of the type New Jersey's new law demands could lead to retaliation and intimidation, whether by government officials or employers. And one can add violent extremist groups to that list as well. In the late 1950s, the Supreme Court responded to rising violent extremism and government harassment targeting civil rights groups by holding, in a case titled NAACP v. Alabama, that the state could not force the NAACP to hand over its membership lists. The decision recognized a fundamental interest in private association protected from government exposure, especially when what the decision called private community pressures, enabled by the compelled disclosure, might later interfere with the free association of citizens. That's our show for this week. 
If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week, and have a happy 4th of July weekend.